Hence the famous story, which is Machiavellian. Nice people finish last, right? You played by the rules, you worked hard, and you still got yeah. screwed. Welcome to the Alpha Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Yulia. As some of you may know, I help misunderstood kids and misguided parents develop better systems for getting along and getting stuff done. And the Alpha Parent Podcast is all about how to be a leader and how to trade your power as a parent for your influence and how to model the behavior that you would like your kids to reflect back to you, how to model your values so that your kids reflect those values and pass on the traditions to their kids. Um, and these are the traditions that help us live a meaningful life in service to our community. And I'm here with a very special guest, Professor Nicholas Dungy. And Professor Dungy was my political philosophy professor at Cal State Northridge. Um, over a decade ago, so this is really cool to have you here. I'm still alive. <laughs> You're still alive. <laughs> I want to introduce you just a tiny bit. I'm going to miss a lot of stuff, but basically you teach political philosophy, and as you claim, and I agree, it's way different than politics and what, what that normal conversation is about. Um, and your class was one of my favorites, and I want to say that it impacted me for a long time after. Yeah, it, it really um, shifted the way that I looked at the world and my place in the world. And you brought a lot of passion and love and energy that everybody felt. And you're beloved for that. So, <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah, well, thank you very much. You've left a good legacy. Okay. <laughs> and you. uh, you've acquired, uh, what's the word that you use? Um, what are we all driven by? You mean glory? Glory. Well, I, glory. I, I hope that I have not acquired it in a Machiavellian sense. I, I. Which, is, which is what we're going to talk about today. No. So um, I wanted to broaden the typical conversation that I usually have with parents, where we're kind of hyper-focused on the day-to-day and uh, things that are top of mind. You know, how do I get through a day? How do I get my kids to do what I need them to do? you know, get dressed, get out the door, go to school, pay attention, focus, do their homework, go to bed, all these routines and systems. But our life exists within a greater context. Uh, and I wanted to broaden the scope of this conversation uh, by inviting you to talk about this idea of power. How do we understand power? How do we apply power? And how does that relate to parenting? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I want to kind of help parents answer this question of why is my child so oppositional? Why are they defiant? Why can't they just do this? And talk about how many parents use power and coercion in order to get their kids to behave. And what I'm trying to do is help them trade power for influence. And uh, you know, the, the question for me is, why is this such a difficult concept? Um, you know, so this is a difficult concept for parents to adapt and employ because it goes against maybe how they were parented or what their understanding is of their role as a parent. 
and how to be the executive of their family. So when it comes to executive functioning, my goal is to help each individual I'm working with govern themselves, become self-aware, develop the ability to um, assess their behavior and modify it in order to act on their values rather than their impulses, to delay their gratification. Um, so why is this such a difficult concept for most people to grasp and implement? Yeah, well, it's not just a profoundly difficult concept, but it's probably impossible for some very important reasons. And um, so for some reasons that are, are quite easily explainable and, and, um, and, and also perhaps I don't want to be pessimistic here. I don't forgive me about impossible. I don't mean to put it in that sense, but, but one of the great challenges, even before we get into a kind of story about the emergence of the idea of power in modern political philosophy and the way that that has become a cultural narrative. Uh, even before we get into that discussion, there is already a kind of tension in the language that you used about values and power or influence and power. And we need to identify at the very beginning um, that there may be an extraordinary disconnect at the deepest philosophical and familial and individual and cultural levels between what we want to ideally think of as our, our values and actually what our values are as they operate in who we are and how we operate in this culture mm -hmm. and in a kind of modern capitalist desire-driven, vanity-driven culture. Uh, and so we can we can unpack that yeah. when we get there. And and also to this, I, I know that sounds very kind of kind of dense right now, but the same tension that we're talking about in terms of value and power is also perhaps caught up in this this desire or this tension between power and influence um, and we can unpack that yeah. we when you bring up the idea of this di difference between power and influence you are and we talked about this before we started so we can bring this in later but your influence and especially the type of influence that you are seeking to have people understand may not be possible for them in the philosophical and cultural context in which we live and in which we've been deeply influenced to act. Okay. You can walk us down that path. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. you want to do it? Let's do it. Okay. Let's just dive in. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's just start with power okay. and um, I'll tell a sort of historical philosophical story. Let, let's just start with the idea of power and especially start with the modern conception of power as it is articulated in the early 1500s by an extraordinary famous or infamous political philosopher named Niccolo Machiavelli. 
And uh, Machiavelli is a bit of a, uh, he's a kind of a cultural word. He, everybody knows the, the name Machiavelli. Um, and in fact, it's the very name Machiavelli and the, the tension it brings up in, in this culture, the, the kind of dispute, um, is very much related to this whole distinction between power and influence because even now in a, in a kind of pop cultural sort of way, if someone describes you as a Machiavellian, it is, depending on your philosophical or perhaps theological perspective, it is either the greatest compliment someone can give you or it's the most profound insult someone can give you. Right. So Machiavellian Machiavelli is is a is a is a word everybody knows, everybody's familiar with. And um, like I said, it's either the most profound compliment or it's the most profound insult. And so why is that? What's going on with that? And what does that have to do with what you're interested in, in terms of parenting, executive function, parents as executives of families? So so this idea of power, a certain idea of power, and, and, and a broader philosophical story about, about truth, about the cosmos, about what it means to be a human being, and about politics, and about, about very deep things is all wrapped up in this. So we got to kind of tell a story here. Um, so in the early 1500s, Machiavelli is an Italian political philosopher, uh, he's living in Florence. He's alive during the Renaissance. And, and Machiavelli initiates and begins what we call modern political philosophy. He, he literally initiates an entirely new philosophical and political philosophical tradition. And he initiates this modern political and philosophical tradition by destroying the ancient and the classical political philosophical tradition. And without boring your listeners too much, when I say ancient, I just literally mean um, basically from the time of Socrates, um, 450 BC to 399 BC, Socrates is ex executed by the Athenians in 399 for teaching philosophy and Plato. Um, and that, that kind of philosophical tradition that begins with Plato, is carried on by Aristotle, um, is then carried on by the Roman humanists and, and the Stoics, and then articulated in a theological way with the emergence of New Testament Christianity. Uh, and, and the classical world literally then goes basically from the time of Plato, 375 BC is when the, the famous Republic, Plato's Republic was written, all the way up until the 1500s right up into the time of Machiavelli. And so the classical and the ancient world kind of included Greek and Roman political philosophy, as well as the emergence of New Testament Christianity and monotheism in Western culture. And the classical world um, was really rooted in some important ideas. Um, and one either it, you can think of this in a kind of philosophical sense in a platonic and an aristotelian sense and you can think of this in a in a christian sense um 
and obviously the, 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 the Greeks and the Christians think of this in different ways, but the structure is the same. What they shared in common, what the classical world committed itself to, was the idea that some objective truth existed and that this objective truth had a moral component. You know, Plato was the first to famously argue, look, there's, there's an objective truth to ideas like justice, or there's an objective truth to ideas like love or friendship, right? And, and of course, New Testament Christianity has a version of that. There's an objective truth about God and God's laws, and, the, and those laws are moral, right? And so, so in both Greek political philosophy and New Testament Christianity, there's this idea, they think of it differently, but there's this idea that something like an objective truth exists in terms of ideas in the Platonic sense or moral laws in the Christian and the, in the Islamic sense, and that these things are true and they are mor morally true. And also they shared the idea that it's not just that some objective truth exists out there, but that there's something special and unique about human beings that provides us awareness of and then ultimately access to that truth. And this is the, the invention of the idea of reason in Western culture. And Plato had famously said that reason is a special faculty unique to human beings that if activated, one lets human beings become aware that there's some truth about justice or some truth about friendship or some truth about love that's out there. And that if we become open to that possibility and we activate that openness through philosophy, through questioning, the, the, the commitment to the elevation of mind, that, that with a lot of work, we can acquire a little bit of knowledge about that. And, and we can use that knowledge to apply it first to ourselves to learn how to live well. What literally what Plato called self-governing, which by the way is a version of what you are calling executive function yes. right now. And the goal of that was not only to apply it to oneself to learn how to live well, um, and they meant in kind of in a moral sense to acquire knowledge about what about justice, about friendship, about courage, and and not just apply it to ourselves, but the political part of political philosophy was then to share it with the community in the hopes of reducing crisis, both in one's own life, in one's own family, and in the city. And and this is really the the core of all the famous Platonic dialogues. This is what they are about. And with the emergence of New Testament Christianity, you have a version of that. Right, that that there is an objective truth out there. It is God. It is God's word about important things, essential concepts. And the Christians taught in their own way, like the Greeks did in their own way, that there's something unique about human beings. Human beings possess a soul. And that soul, if they become aware of it, makes them aware of the divine. And if they open up that soul, in this case, through the reading of scripture, um, then they can acquire knowledge about how to live well, apply it to their lives, and and have what you call executive function. Um, and also, too, the, the Greeks and the Christians had argued that something like moral and, and legal and political institutions were natural to human beings, that it was, as you say, we are hardwired to, to be social and political creatures. And in fact, Aristotle famously said, we are the zoon political, which means that we are literally the political animal, by which he meant we only express our highest potential as moral beings through a kind of shared political process. Um, and and so 
So those are the kind of the, the boot camp version of classical political philosophy and theology. And I, and I bore you with it just to set up how radical Machiavelli is and, and, and not just how he shatters the classical political, philosophical, and theological world, but how he sets in motion what we call modernity and from which emerges this modern notion of power and an entirely new conception of what it means to be a human being and, and what it means to be happy, which is at the very essence of the crisis we are seeing at every level of society, the individual level, the familial level, and what we're now witnessing in the post-capitalistic collapse of democracy is literally, this is at the very heart. We have played out actually um, and perfected, and in its perfection, finding its end, and its end means its collapse, a set of ideas put into motion by Machiavelli. So what the hell am I talking about? So Machiavelli emerges in the 1500s, and he says three things that shatter the world and, and fundamentally alter Western um, economic and human and political history. And Machiavelli says three things. He, he emerges onto the scene in the 1500s. And by the way, Machiavelli is not alone in this. Machiavelli's alive during the Renaissance. Right. And the Renaissance is obviously French for rebirth, rebirth of what? A kind of certain learning, um, a certain kind of knowledge about certain parts of the classical world, the rediscovery of Greek math, which set in motion the first scientific revolution with Galileo and, and then um, later Newton and, and certainly da Vinci. Da Vinci is alive when Machiavelli is in Florence. Um, in fact, da Vinci, a young da Vinci, worked for the Medicis. Um, and Machiavelli would later work for the same Medici that had hired da Vinci. So, so there's a lot of really profound things happening in Florence in the late 1400s and the early 1500s. So, so Machiavelli absolutely shatters the classical world and he sets in motion what we now call modernity. Um, but he was also alive during a very revolutionary intellectual, scientific, philosophical time. And so Machiavelli emerges in the 1500s and he writes the most, one of the most famous books ever written on political philosophy and politics called The Prince. Again, which is either either it's a great compliment to be Machiavellian or it's an extraordinary insult. Um, and there's no in-between, which is this tension that you're talking about between power and influence. And Machiavelli said three things. He said, look, the Greeks and the Christians were wrong about three things. One, there is no moral order to the universe. There is no objective truth that has a moral orientation. And so he is taking a sledgehammer first to Plato's idea of an objectively true idea of, say, justice or an objectively true version or account of the moral life. Machiavelli simply says it doesn't exist. There are no objectively true ideas that have moral implications. And he said the same is also true for the Christians, the, the, that that. There is no God is dead. Machiavelli was the first to say quiet. He didn't say it out loud because he's living in the heart of the you know the Catholic Empire, and to say something like that would have been a death sentence. But he implied in the Prince that there is no God. That God is in fact dead, and so the the cosmos has no moral order. Um, and he said that the cosmos is actually anarchic and. 
as we were discussing before uh, we got started here. This is this is really the the origin of the use of that term in Western culture. The term had been around, obviously, um, and as we said, it derives from the negative treatment of a Greek word, arche, A-R-C-H-E, arche. And arche was Greek for order, and it meant a physical order. Plato thought the cosmos had a mathematical structure. It was literally geometric. And it also had a moral order, that there's an objectively true justice out there. Um, so basically, like it, that allows us to basically agree oh, on what it means oh, to be a good person okay. and have and live a good life. It's really it's it's not just basically agree, which is correct. It's it when when someone like Plato or when the New Testament Christians or or the Muslims say that there is an objective truth that has a moral orientation, they are they are saying something quite profound. What they're saying is that whatever that truth is, however you conceive of it, Plato had thought of it as this whole series of ideas. Like there was literally a, a pure idea, which is a kind of a definition of justice or friendship. Uh, and it's out there. It's out there in the cosmos, right? And, and when I say, by the way, when I say something is objectively true, what that means at a very basic level is three things. Uh, and this is true for monotheistic religions. If, if, if you are committed to a monotheistic religion, say Islam or New Testament Christianity, or you're committed to some kind of political philosophy, a Platonic or Stoic political philosophy, that that asserts that there's something is objectively true. It it has to have three characteristics. Whatever it is, an idea or God, right? It has to ha apply everywhere. It has to have always applied, and it has to apply to everyone. Those are the three characteristics that give an idea or a claim that we want to associate with true its universal qualifications. Okay, so so anyway, so so that's what I mean when I say that. And Machiavelli had come along and said, look, there there is no objectively true idea understood as justice or God in the religious sense that has a moral orientation. And so the cosmos doesn't have arche. Machiavelli said quite the opposite. The, the cosmos has anarchy, right? The cosmos is without order. Like that's literally what the word anarchy means. It means no order. <laughs> and, and, and Machiavelli said the cosmos has no order. It has no moral order. There's no objective truth with a moral orientation. And it, and it doesn't even really have a physical order. In fact, in fact, Machiavelli said, and this is a very important idea to modernity, this is one of the deep, deep philosophical ideas that gets an entire paradigm, is what it sets in motion. Machiavelli said, look, it's, it's not just that the, the cosmos has no order, it, it, moral, but physically, it has no physical order. In fact, in fact, it's quite unstable. It's quite chaotic. And the physical world is, in fact, quite threatening to human life. In fact, there are plagues, there are diseases, there are crop failures, right? The natural, the universe and the natural world is anarchic, right? And, and an extraordinary amount of the things that happen in that world are threatening right. and hostile to human life. And, and by the way, if you ever want to talk about the environmental implications of this idea, I'm happy to come back on another show because this is the very origin in the modern West of this idea that human beings are in conflict with or hostile with nature and that they somehow have to acquire science and technology and to use that to 
to one dominate or domesticate nature and then use that to extort its resources for wealth and power which by the way set in motion the whole modern view of the human relationship to nature as something you conquer and extract resources for wealth and now we've we've now we're in environmental collapse so these are deep deep things going on so getting back to that machiavelli first said look the cosmos has no order there's no moral or physical order and in fact it's anarchic and therefore it's quite threatening it's nature is a threatening place it, it, our original condition of freedom living in this anarchic world is terrifying um, and it is a terrifying experience and from a certain point of view he's right if, if you if you look at the relationship from a certain point of view between nature and human beings from the time of Socrates human beings were at the mercy of nature if in fact Machiavelli himself had just escaped one of the third waves of plague that came through in the late late 15th century late 1490s through Venice um, and so you know if there were crop failures millions of people died if there was disease in the plants if if there was no rain, people were at the mercy of nature. And so Machiavelli saw nature in the cosmos as anarchic and threatening. So that's the first thing he said. <laughs> Two, yeah. I hope I'm not boring everybody. Two, it's not just that the universe has no moral or, but Machiavelli said that the Greeks and the Christians were wrong about human beings. And again, this is extraordinarily important. The Greeks and the Christians had taught in of course different ways but the idea is, is similar in the structure that people are inherently good they a, a fundamental cornerstone of, of platonic and stoic political philosophy and new testament christian theology and and islam is that people are inherently good now what does that mean for plato people were inherently good because they were rational and what that means, as we said earlier, for Plato, reason was a special faculty that potentially made people aware that justice exists and that if they activate it, they can acquire knowledge and learn how to live well. And again, the Christians have a similar idea. And now, obviously, it's, it's true that Christian theology says people are born in sin. That's true. But that's not what's most important for Christian mythology in terms of this idea that people are inherently good. What's important for Christian mythology, theology, excuse me, is that people have a soul. And because they have a soul, they have this inherent, always potential connection to the divine. And if they become aware of it, then they can be saved. So and basically they can use their executive functioning in order to act on those yeah, values yeah, and to, use that objective good. truth yep. as a compass yeah, oh, to guide them absolutely yeah to, to using their yep. basically executive functioning their reason yep. in order to manage their impulses emotions yep. like yep. their animalistic nature almost yep. absolutely uh, because that that objective what i think yep. the christians define as spirituality mm -hmm. the truth absolutely uh, it's, so it's, that you can live a good life yeah the christian version of this is is is, is it's, it's a different story than the philosophical, but it follows the same process, right? People, you, you, you have a soul, and that soul makes you aware of the divine, and the purpose of life is to activate or open that soul to, to knowledge of the divine by reading scripture and then doing it, right? right? And, and, and by the way, that's what they call not living in sin, right? And therefore getting closer to the divine. So, so again, the stories are different, but the structure is the same. Okay. And, but Machiavelli comes along the scene and says the Greeks and the Christians 
were fundamentally wrong about people being inherently good. Now, this this is both a technical argument and 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 a very intense argument. And the technical argument is Machiavelli says, look, even before I get preachy about this, people can't be technically good in either the Platonic or the Christian sense because Machiavelli is rejecting the idea that some objective truth exists, right? So if, there, if there's no moral truth about justice or if Machiavelli is suspicious about the existence of God, then people can't be morally good because there's nothing to be good about. You know, you see what I mean? And so Machiavelli says that the Greeks and the Christians were wrong about human nature. People aren't inherently good because there's no knowledge of moral truth to acquire or there's no God. And so, okay, so Machiavelli says, well, if people aren't inherently good, what are they? And Machiavelli said, well, famously, people are inherently bad. And what he meant by that was two things. First, he meant it in the sense that it sounds people can be very aggressive they can be very selfish they can be very self-interested they can be very manipulative they you know um can be duplicitous and they can be bad in all the ways that we typically think of the word um but but by, by the way this is a parents all these words yeah. are what how parents describe their kids right well <laughs> okay now now let's get to the deeper yeah. part here right why okay so why are they all those things mm -hmm. right here's and, and now we're getting into the heart of darkness here of modernity why are they all those things and machiavelli said well they are aggressive selfish self-interested duplicitous manipulative because machiavelli said the greeks and the christians were wrong about what people want the Greeks and the Christians, in different ways, argued that people were inherently good because they could be educated or they could be saved, and that once they were aware of that, that's what they would want, that people would want to acquire knowledge to live well, to, to align their lives with the divine. And Machiavelli said, first of all, that's not what they want. They can't want that because those things don't exist. And, and by the way, it was wrong to think that that's what they want. And Machiavelli said, and by the way, this is, this is one of the reasons why the classical republics failed. And in a very snarky way, this is why Machiavelli would say, um, look, it's no accident that the Athenians killed Socrates. Socrates spent 30 years preaching to his fellow Athenians about moral virtue, that they should want it and that they should live that way, and they should all live like Socrates. And he was accused of corrupting the youth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they killed him. They, right. it, you know, from a, from a snarky Machiavellian point of view, Machiavelli would say, look, they just got tired of... There's proof. Yeah, there's <laughs> proof, <laughs> right? Right? And, and, and this, but aside from that snarkiness, what Machiavelli is saying is the Greeks and the Christians fundamentally misunderstood what people are and what they want. They're not inherently good. They can be very very self-interested and aggressive because they don't want moral virtue they want to acquire things that give them pleasure and this and and again at another deep level of the initiation of modernity this is called you you if you had to reduce all of modern political philosophy and all of the crises that we're talking about as we watch literally the place come apart right now you you, you could sum it you could sum up modernity in its origins and its crisis as the age of acquisition. Machiavelli said that 
people don't want to be good. Maybe they do if it interests them. Maybe they'll be good if it's in their interest or it makes them feel good. But at the end of the day, what people really want is to acquire things, right? People want to acquire things that make them feel good, literally, right? And and by the way, this is literally the age of acquisition and and it is the beginning of a fundamental transformation in the philosophical meaning of happiness, right? And we can talk about that a little later if you want to because it's profound. And so, so people want things, right? They're driven to acquire the things that they want to make them happy give them play and literally at a core level what gives them pleasure right and just to frame it in terms of executive function just to bring it back uh the way i look at it is we use executive function to delay our gratification in order to act on our values mm -hmm. and assuming you have those values assuming you have those right. values what you're talking about is um being governed by your impulses oh, there's no question about and it instant gratification and you're pursuing it as and much. pursuing it as much as possible yep. and how our culture and and the the type of economic system we have rewards oh, that it, it, it it's rewarding the behavior is the kind of second or third step, right? The fundamental reinterpretation of what human nature is, what drives human beings and what brings them happiness is at the core of this. Absolutely. In fact, it's, it's funny that you, you put it in the, in the, the language of reward. There's a, a very famous passage. I quote it to all of my students. And when we're reading Machiavelli, because it is it is prescient, it's it's creepy, terrifying how prescient it is. And it comes in towards the end of chapter three of Machiavelli's The Prince, and he's still getting into the argument. And Machiavelli says something, and, and again, this is what initiates this modernity. He says, and, and, he's, and he's rejecting, he's, he's subtly and quietly and in a very sophisticated way rejecting the Greek and the New Testament Christian notion of executive function, of what who people are and how they should live and what should make them happy. And he's rejecting it. And he says in this very subtle but very powerful way, anybody who read it and had any understanding understood immediately what it meant. And he said, it is a very natural and ordinary thing to desire to acquire, mm. comma. And always, he wrote, and those who seek to acquire and are successful, they will be praised. But those who seek to acquire but are not, there lies the blame. And that is, in three sentences, the entire description of the malaise of post-capitalistic modernity. It is a very natural and ordinary thing to desire to acquire, and not just once, but always. He puts the comma and says, and always. And those who desire to acquire and succeed and do so, they will be praised. And that's the American dream. Right. Right? You are you are praised because you make a lot of money. You can consume. You've got a beautiful house. You've got all these things. Right? You're praised. But those who seek 
to acquire but cannot there is the blame and and this is the crisis and 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 hence hence the, the extraordinary dissatisfaction that is happening now in post-capitalistic social welfare liberal democracies where we've gutted the middle class there there is no more economic future for a vast majority of young people period the the systemic inequality between the very 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 wealthy and everybody else is now permanent and people are starting to understand this they they now understand they're the losers there's the blame and they don't have a, a way out and so the revolution is coming okay now back to the point the third thing machiavelli said was it's not just that the universe has no moral order it's not just that people are not inherently good they're actually quite inherently bad and they're inherently bad because they want to acquire things and in the pursuit of acquiring things they can hurt you right and then three politics the institute the political institutions they're not natural to human beings in fact they don't exist by nature um and in fact machiavelli said politics are something that human beings have to create that if you want law and if you want political institutions and you want stability then you have to create it because the world in and of itself the world is anarchic right in and of itself the world has no naturally or divinely existing moral order you don't you're not just kind of stumbling through the forest and there's an institution right or there's there's there's, there's a legal process right. right whatever those things are machiavelli taught right and by the way this was a this was a huge blow Right. Because in the classical world, I mean, one of the core ideas of Christian theology is that the law is divine, that, that it's is natural. We have a soul. It's natural to have a soul. And so knowledge of a kind of legal order, knowledge of a political order is natural. In fact, it comes right from God. Right. And it comes from to the, to the Pope and to the Cardinals or the pre, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a natural, the political order is a kind of manifestation. It's a terrestrial mortal manifestation of God's political schema, you know. Um, is this uh, what is on, on a very simple level, like when you look at a family, there's a natural hierarchy. Yeah, well. Yeah, and you're born is, into yeah, it, basically. Well, this is a kind and of classical exists. thing. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so Machiavelli came along and he, he rejected all of those things. So there is no natural order. Uh, the universe is anarchic. People are inherently bad. They're aggressive. You can't trust them. And three, politics aren't natural. Okay, now I've, I've, all your listeners have, 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 have I've lost all your listeners. So, That's okay, I'm still here. So anyway. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I, but, but this is necessary so we can talk about power. All right. So you just framed the conversation at this point, and you juxtaposed the ancient idea of the objective truth that there is a high moral uh, there's a moral ground out there uh, it exists in nature and we can use our executive functioning our in reason. order our reason in order to become aware of acquire it knowledge acquire of it. knowledge yeah. of it become aware of it and reach for it mm -hmm. and live a life based on those values by applying it to our lives by applying it in the hopes of reducing crisis yes in our lives and machiavelli comes along and destroys it. destroys it based on these three ideas that there is no moral objective truth right um that human beings human beings are actually not inherently good right and therefore 
people are inherently bad and right. driven by desire to acquire which things. is things and pleasures pleasures and sex. comfort yeah sex and right? wealth and um, comfort and material things so this sets the stage mm -hmm. for uh, how we govern yes. ourselves how we understand power and how we understand power in yep. the modern yeah, era yep all right, so yep. I'll let you yep. so, take it away So this is what yeah. makes Machiavelli Machiavelli. Machiavelli shatters the classical world, both the, the Platonic and, and Stoic political philosophical world and the New Testament Christian and, and Islamic world. And he says, okay, so now we have a problem, Machiavelli says, right? Um, the world isn't what people thought it was. People aren't who they thought they were, and politics isn't natural. And so Machiavelli says, look, the, the universe is anarchic, people are bad, and politics doesn't exist by nature. Holy smokes, right? What the hell do we do now? And the what do we do now is what actually makes Machiavelli famous. This is where Machiavelli becomes Machiavelli. And Machiavelli says, look, what is necessary is the emergence of what he called the prince. Literally, the book is titled The Prince. And what is necessary is the emergence of this extraordinarily unique, rare, powerful man or woman, this aristocratic person, this prince, um, who, who kind of emerges on the scene and through certain teachings that we will get to in a few minutes, is able to acquire and exercise this kind of raw and this ferocious power, right? There's this, there's this rare, unique, aristocratic person who emerges in this anarchic scene, in this anarchic world, surrounded by these selfish people in a place where there's no legal and political order, right? And this is what, this is the responsibility of the prince. And by the way, this is the response. This is this is what becomes the core executive responsibility for every person in a position of leadership and authority in the world. This this becomes the foundation of what it means to be a CEO. This becomes the foundation of what it means to be a political leader. This even becomes the foundation of what it means to be an apparent in this executive model. So this is this is profound. It is pervasive in the culture. And so Machiavelli says what is required. You think about it, right? There's no moral truth. People are chasing what they want. And because they're chasing what they want, they're distrustful, right? They, you, you can't trust them. They're going to do things that are aggressive and selfish. They're going to harm you to get what they want. And you're, they're doing it in an environment where there's no legal and political order. So we're all going to die. <laughs> but literally, this is, and, and in a weird way, this, this is applicable to many parts of the world as political institutions fall, as chaos emerges, as institutions collapse, as civil wars degrade societies, and, and you get this kind of scenario. And this is, this is actually in Syria. This is actually in significant parts of the Middle East. This is in significant parts of Sub-Sahara Africa and, and Middle Africa. Um, you know, this is, this is kind of a real thing for even now for significant numbers of the world population. But Machiavelli says, what the hell do you do? 
How, how do you get out of this, right? How in the hell do you escape this? How do you transcend this? What's the answer? And Machiavelli says the answer is the prince. The answer is the new executive. And Machiavelli invents the modern executive. And in inventing the modern executive, Machiavelli invents the modern notion of power. And so Machiavelli says, okay, what is necessary is for this person, this rare, unique, aristocratic person, to kind of emerge on the scene and acquire and exercise a sufficient kind of raw power that will enable the prince to do two things. One, establish security. First and foremost, the most important of all the functions of all modern power and all executive power that derives is the establishment of security. And for the prince, this literally means bringing order to a certain territory. This is, this is Italy, right? And, and these are our territorial borders and and inside these territorial borders, there's order, because here's the law, right? And, and, you, and even in families, that's the, what is the most core and basic function of parents? Establish stability and establish order, right? Is there continuity in the, in the home, in the family structure? Does electricity work? Can you lock the door? Are people safe at night, right. period? And this is, this is the truth for the family, as well as, as executive power as a president of the United States or a prime minister or a dictator. They're all the same, right? The core function of all executives, keep, this, keep the company safe, keep the family safe, keep the country safe, period. It's the keep same. Keep them alive. Keep them alive yeah. and, and keep it ordered. Yeah. Keep ordered. Now, once you establish order, then the second thing that you use this power to is then to then take your talents or your abilities and and because you are safe because there's order then you can take all that intellectual energy that creative energy all that genius that you may have that the kids may have or the citizens may have and you can take that and you can release it now all those people because there's order because they're not terrified because they're not using their talents and energies to defend themselves or protect themselves in conditions of anarchy right now i'm safe in our world, in the executive function world, what you're saying is when we don't feel safe, the part of our oh. brain that's activated is fight-flight. It's yep. like our lizard brain, this yep. primitive yep. need for security, and that's what we focus on. Yep. But when that part of our brain isn't activated, when, we've, when we are safe, right. then our human brain is activated. Right. That's where the genius is. Yeah. You can build Microsoft, you right. can be George Clooney, right. you, can, you can be an actor, you can be Bill Gates, you can be a professional athlete, you can become an attorney, right? You can do the things right. that if you, you didn't have to worry about your security or defend your security all the time, you could do. And by the way, you could mobilize your, your unique talents to acquire wealth so you can buy things, right? <laughs> right? So this is literally the beginning of this kind of 
age of acquisition and proto-capitalism. By the way, when I do acquire things, uh, because there's security and order, mm -hmm. I can keep them and oh, hold yeah. on to Absolute. them. Oh, that's critical. Because yeah. if, I, if I thought that that was just going to get taken yeah, away from me, I right. wouldn't acquire it. This is a key. Yeah. It's, it, that's actually quite brilliantly put. This is a core thing, right? There's, you know, Hobbes, had, who, who is an English political philosopher, writing in the 1650s, writing 100 years after Machiavelli, this becomes a core argument of of why it is so important to establish political order. Because if there's no political order, Hobbes said there's, there's really no reason to talk about property, right? right. Because, yeah. uh, and, and by the way, just to, <laughs> to horrify your listeners, Hobbes, the, with Hobbes is one of the early and emergent ideas of human equality in Western civilization. And in Hobbes, it, it didn't quite mean what we came to think of it later in the Lockean and the more kind of domesticated liberal philosophical sense for Hobbes. And this is the origin of the idea of equality in Western culture. It's, it's not what people think. Uh, and, Hobbes, and Hobbes was the first to really introduce this idea of human equality as a philosophical idea, which became the foundation for Western culture. And Hobbes said, yeah, we're all equal. And he said, we're equally vulnerable to a violent death at the hands of our neighbors. <laughs> Right. And, and what he, so what he meant, yeah. right, he didn't mean it in the sense that we think about it now. He said, look, everybody's equal. It doesn't, and, and if you're living in a condition without political order, right, it doesn't matter who you are. You can, you can, you can be George Clooney. You can be Bill Gates. You can be um, a famous athlete. You can be a supermodel or you can be a hedge fund manager. You, you can be one of the most brilliant and talented people in the world in a certain area and have certain capacities, right? But none of those talents, none of those types of inequalities, because clearly Bill Gates is vastly superior to me in intellectual power, right? Bill Gates is clearly my superior. Right. He, there, there's no intellectual equality between Nick Dungy and Bill Gates. There's no, in, there's no physical equality between Nick Dungy and Mike Trout, the best baseball player in the world. There's no physical equality between Nick Dungy and, say, Brad Pitt, right? Stunningly beautiful people, right? So, there, so in, in, there are all sorts of types of inequalities that emerge among people. Exceptionalities. Yep. Right? Okay, yeah. exceptionalities. <laughs> but, but if there are no legal and political institutions, those exceptionalities do you no good, right? right? Because even if you did build a, a software like, you know, or you wanted to play baseball, or you wanted to make movies, there's, there's no conditions in which those things can operate. And, and therefore, you can't keep anything. So, so it's not consistent. Yeah, well, it's, it, it, like it, it's well you, can't, you can't operationalize it, right. right? And this is what Hobbes meant by equality, right? Everybody is equal. The, the, the most beautiful, the most brilliant, and, and, and the most kind of average. I don't, forgive me if I'm saying anything inappropriate. Um, they're all equal in the sense that everybody dies. Everybody is equally vulnerable to a violent death. Right. And in fact, one of the one, well, this is a kind of a tangent, so forgive me. But one of the reasons we see what we see now in the systemic creation of profound inequality is a kind of a dark secret about why this culture was put into place. It was put into place not for the reasons we think it was put into place. So these extraordinary exceptionalities could express themselves and then dominate. 
So anyway, but that's another yeah, discussion. So 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 Machiavelli says, look, people, you know, you have to have this prince and and this man or woman, and he or she has to come along and acquire and exercise this extraordinary amount of power, which at times is terrifying, right? Um, in order, and this is key, in order to impose a kind of order, a legal order, an institutional order, even a kind of moral order, if they're, you know, depending on what the prince wants to say it is. So people are secure. So then people can go and acquire, because as he said, it's a natural and ordinary thing to want to acquire. And those who desire to acquire and achieve it, they are praised. Okay, so, so the, the prince's goal is to establish security. The executive's goal is to establish security so the people inside that community can pursue the things that privately give them happiness, understood as pleasure, understood as consumption. All right, now, now we get deep. Now it gets kind of heavy. Now Machiavelli has a problem. He's got a profound problem. And his answer to this problem is what creates us. So this prince is necessary, this executive is necessary, this person who acquires and exercises this extraordinary power, right, which is that sometimes terrifying, and, and it has to be sophisticated enough to keep the whole damn thing going. Across time, you gotta keep a whole family going for 40 years, despite its, its crises and its, its explosions, right? It's, it's, how, do you, how the hell do you do that? And, and, and more importantly, this is Machiavelli's problem, where do you learn that? And this is this is just so profound, right? It is it's 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 impossible to exaggerate how profound this is, right? Because you have to have this person who emerges, and he or she has got to acquire and ex and exercise this power to impose order in a world that doesn't have it over people who are naturally resistant to it, and keep it going across time. One, how, how the hell do you do that? And then two, the, 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 the mind-boggling thing here is where do you go to learn this? And this is, and this is not a joke. This is, this is not rhetoric. Because as we just said in the, earlier when I lost your, your audience, Machiavelli has shattered 2,000 years of philosophy and religious tradition. Right? He shattered it. Right in the classical world, if you if you were a parent, if you were a member of an aristocratic family, you were a parent in an aristocratic family, and you wanted to send your child to be educated to prepare him or her to know how to do this stuff. If you were of the if you were part of Greek culture or or the first part of the Roman Empire, you literally sent your child to Plato's Academy, and Plato's Academy was still existing in Athens or some version of it, you literally sent your kid to be educated by the philosophers. Or after New Testament Christianity emerges, if you were a member of an aristocratic family, you sent probably your son to the Jesuits. You, you sent him to the Jesuits. And the Jesuits educated this person in moral law and political law. And, and so there was somewhere where you sent the kids to learn this, right? But Machiavelli has shattered all of that, right? So, so Machiavelli is saying, look, this person has to emerge and this person has to do these things. Where the hell do you learn these things? Literally, there's nowhere to go. And, and Machiavelli invents, and this changes the world. Machiavelli says, I'll tell you where you send your child. And it's a metaphor. And it, it opens up 
this this extraordinary transition in human life. He says, you send, and, and by the way, he, he, he uses a metaphor that predates Socrates. So he, he reaches back into Western culture that is deeper. It's, it's Homeric and it's Greek tragic. And it's important because it, it predates the emergence of this metaphysical philosophy, this idea that there's an objective moral truth. And he says, I'll tell you the secret, Machiavelli says. This is chapter 18 of The Prince. He says, you send, you send your child to be educated by Chiron the centaur. All right. He says, he says, if you want to know how to learn how to be this person, this prince, this executive, you, you send your child or you yourself, you, you learn these, these rules. He says, you go to Chiron the centaur to be taught. And, and he says, by the way, this was secretly known to the Homeric Greeks and to the aristocratic Greeks of the tragic age. Like they knew. Right before Socrates came and messed everything up. So are they reaching into like the medieval? No, no, is the, deeper, than that? deeper. Oh, okay. this is this is this is this is prior to the emergence of of Socratic philosophy in 450 BC. This is this is a Homeric and Greek tragic thing, and they said so. You send him to to Chiron, uh, the centaur, and and of course, what the hell is that? And and the centaur is half person half animal right it's got the it's got the bust of a man usually a man and but it's got the body of some type of hooved animal sometimes they're two-legged sometimes they're four-legged sometimes it looks like a a, a two-legged kind of thing or a horse or a donkey it's some it's some version of that and the key is is that it's half human half animal and and i know we don't have time to get into this so we'll get right to it so this is this is profound and Machiavelli says he says look there are two ways to fight there are two ways to acquire and exercise this power one by laws one by force one by beasts one by laws one by force he says the the, the way of exercising power by laws is the human way but the way of exercising power by force is the animal way and he says usually the human way classical political philosophy negotiation reason seeing the best in people that doesn't work and so you need to understand how to become an animal you need to learn how to acquire and exercise power by force right you need to be, literally become an animal you need to get into touch with your animal instincts and he says and since you need to learn how to become an animal you need to learn how to become two types of animal you need and, and this changes everything you need to learn how to become a lion and you need to learn how to become a fox. And he says, let's start with the lion. And there are two attributes that one must learn that are essential to the modern notion of power and the modern notion of executive power, whether it's the head of a household or the head of the CEO or the president of the United States or the prime minister. This is the key. You need to learn to become a lion. And there are two parts that you need to learn. Obviously, the first is obvious. You need to become ferocious. That the world is anarchic. People are not good. And you're going to have to do... Con Life is combat, actually. doesn't matter whether you're a CEO or a politician or even an athlete. Life, life is combat. you gotta, you got to see life as combat, right? Because that's really what it is. There, there, there's no order. And people are fighting to survive and fighting to get ahead.
Combat, I think, could be interpreted as like literally, it's a fight yeah. or competition, Com which yeah, is like course. the underlying yeah, tone yeah, of yeah, education yeah, here. Yeah, absolutely, it's a of course, it's a competition. Yeah. Absolutely, and that that is obvious in this culture, right? And Machiavelli says you need to learn to be a lion because if it's either competition or it's conflict, and whether it's competition or conflict, you got to fight ferociously. You got to fight to win. There's no, there's no moral order in, in competition. There's no moral order in conflict, right? You have to fight to win. And in fact, Machiavelli said, you have to be so ferocious in your fighting that you guarantee your enemy can never respond. And we can get deep in the weeds on that. And, and by the way, this is straight up mafioso stuff, right? This is the Sopranos, right? If, 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 if you are in con conflict with a neighboring gang or if you're in conflict with a neighboring corporate uh, competing corporation, it's competition. And, and your goal is to destroy as, as aggressively and, and I'm using violently loosely as you can. The, the goal is to eliminate the competitor or to end the conflict and to end it victoriously. And Machiavelli said, you have to learn how to fight. You have to become ferocious, right? Now, that's obvious. The deeper part of why it's important to become a lion is it's not just that you have to become ferocious, but you have to learn to become ferocious without guilt. The lion is a metaphor for obviously ferocity in conflict, but it's also a metaphor for the fact that the lion feels no guilt. The lion does what the lion does. It just it it hunts. It's got to eat. It, it it's in conflict. It's in competition with other lions. It, it's doing what it has to do. Right, but when it does it, it doesn't feel guilt. It doesn't feel remorse. It doesn't have moral, moral concern. It doesn't have moral guilt. It doesn't have moral doubt. Right, and the, the means to get to the end are justified. They are. They, are. Yeah. they have to be because the ends are survival. Yeah. Right. The ends. The ends are. So what a parent would say is, if I don't punish you. Oh, if I don't beat you into doing the right thing, yeah. you're going to die and I'm protecting you. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and by the way, I have to do this. Yeah. Right. It, in a weird way, I'm, I'm, I, I'm morally expunged from it. Like I'm not morally culpable for this. This is an existential necessity. Right. Right. But this is very important. Machiavelli says, look, it's not just that you can't feel guilt, but you've got to learn how not to feel guilt because the world is chaotic and it's unstable and you're going to be facing crises all the time, which is going to require that from time to time you acquire and exercise this kind of power, which, by the way, is intended to make people fear you. As Machiavelli famously said, is it better to be feared or loved? Now, his answer, and we're going to get to this because we're going to get to the fox, his answer was it's best to be both feared and loved, but usually people don't have the option. Of, of choosing that. And he said, so if, if, if you can't be both feared and loved, it is best to be feared rather than loved because people fear based on your power, but they love you based on theirs. Okay. All right. So Machiavelli said, you got to become a lion. You got to be ferocious and you can't feel guilt. And by the way, this is the beginning of a kind of emergent sociopathology in this culture where we do things out of kind of a necessity, we do them, and even if we think we're doing the right things, like I gotta, I gotta, this, this, this I gotta execute this power, right? But I, I can't feel bad about it because I'm gonna have to do it again, right? And if I'm feeling bad about it, I'm not gonna be prepared to make the right decision. So, but, but emerging out of that, that sort of structure of mind emerges a pathology, 
And Machiavelli says, you've got to learn how not to feel guilt. You've got to learn how to do potentially terrifying things and not feel bad about it. Now, to speed this up, Machiavelli was very astute and he understood something very, very, a very simple thing. People who are in positions of executive power, parents or CEOs or political figures, they can't survive on fear alone, right? Sooner or later, people will have hatred for the parent. They'll have hatred for the political leader because it's just lying. It's just lying. It's just lying, right? And so you have to learn how to become a fox. Okay, what the hell is so that? What does that mean? Yeah. yeah, two components, both mind-blowingly important. One, you've got to become a fox because, because Machiavelli changes the definition of reason in modern culture. For Plato, reason was a kind of magical faculty, special faculty and magical faculty unique to human beings that connected them to some truth. Right? Same as a soul in Christianity. But if those things don't exist, then reason can't be what Plato thought it was. Okay, well, if reason isn't this magical thing that connects you to the truth, what the hell is it? Right? What is reason? And for Machiavelli, and this is the origin of our dominant notion of reason in Western culture. We have in Western culture, in modern Western culture, what is called an instrumental notion of reason. For the Greeks and the Christians, reason was moral. In modernity, reason is instrumental. In fact, it's Spock on Star Trek, right? You have a problem, right? And reason is the process by which you calculate the solution to your problem, period. Moral and moral doesn't matter, right? And so Machiavelli said, think about the fox. The fox, the fox, the fox becomes a metaphor for reason, right? And why? Because typically when you think about the fox, the fox is being hunted, right? The fox is being chased by the, by the horsemen and the hounds. And, and so again, a metaphor for life. Life is combat. Life is competition. You're always being hunted in some way by the pressures of life or by your competitors or the people who want what you have. And so you think about the fox. A fox survives or dies depending on how well it is able under extraordinary pressure and under very compressed and stressful and anxious time to take in information. So the fox is running through the forest all the time. That's a metaphor for life. The CEO is running through the forest. The president is running through an international scene of crises and possibilities. And, you, and so we're, and, or, or we're going through our hectic life trying to, to, be, to be an executive and to raise a family and to be the perfect, we're, we're rushing, we're being hunted by all those things. And, and we are successful in the Machiavellian fox metaphor if we can take in all that information. So the fox is running through the forest. He's being chased by the, by the, the horsemen and the hounds, right? And it's an existential thing. And the fox has taken in all this data. There's a tree. There's an empty log. There's a creek over there. There are the bushes. And it's taken in all this data. In fact, we teach us at my university. This is called methodology. It's called data analysis. And so the fox has taken in all this data, all this data, and it's computing that data in instantaneous real time. And it's, it, it's, it, it's bringing it in. It's, it's, it's kind of computing it. And then it's calculating decisions. Turn left. Get to the hollow log. Turn right run through the stream, the horses hate the water, they're not going to chase you. Mm -hmm. 
So it's 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 a kind of instrumental calculation. It's a means and instrumental calculation. That's what reason becomes. And the better you are at thinking like that, the more successful you're going to be in this world. Reason isn't something that helps you become moral. Reason is an ends mean calculation. And, and that's why, for example, you know, on all these tests that we give kids, LSAT or the GRE, there are these, these logic games mm -hmm. that they have to do. They got to take in this data, right? They've got 45 seconds to puzzle it out and they've got to come up with the right question. And that becomes a, a, a sort of metric of how intelligent people are. Right. You do well on those tests, you go to Harvard Law School. You don't do well, you you go somewhere else, right? right? And, and, and so Machiavelli changes what reason is as calculation and then two and this is the most one of well it's all important but again he understands that people can't be hated right the parent the, the, the parent can't rule on fear alone but the problem is is that from time to time the executive has to do things that are going to make other people unhappy so how do you be an executive that has to potentially do things that make other people unhappy but still be loved but still have glory right, right? how the hell do you do that right because that's hard and Machiavelli says you lie you be the, so the fox is a metaphor for for calculation and duplicity Machiavelli Machiavelli famously said you become duplicitous you show people what they want to see right so you act moral you speak morally you talk and, and then this is why I was kind of pushing on you earlier you were talking about values well we don't have values anymore right we talk like we do but we don't right we or are... there's real values that we operate on versus the values that we think yeah. we're operating well, on. get clear about those no that's right that's right so we've become machiavellian mm -hmm. right absolutely and you have to right you know and and so so for example and again i'm just giving you an example i'm, I'm even gonna have fun now because we gotta we gotta end this up and we're gonna end it up on a joke or, or at least in a in a fun way time. okay in a, in a fun way so uh, when i'm trying to explain this to my students right i i have fun with them which we need to do otherwise it's yeah totally depressing yeah and and so i say to them so look all of you understand this right and this is a joke i'm, I'm making a joke and they know that and i said for for example think of this class None of you here took political philosophy because you like it, because it's an end in itself. No one's sitting at home, right, looking at their schedule, thinking, yeah, I'm going to take a Greek political philosophy class with this idiot named Dungy because I, I think that there's really something wonderful there and some powerful, you know, no one, no, one, no one takes it for an end in itself. Most of you, and I'm, I'm not trying to even be preachy, this is an example of just who we've become. I'm not even making a moral argument. Um, most of you come here because it's a box. You're checking off a box called your general education requirements. And, you're, and, and by the way, you're checking off a box because you believe, that so, you believe what someone told you, that the way out of your working class or your middle class existence is to get a college education and to leverage that education to a good law school and to leverage that law school into money so, so you can take care of your parents and you can, and you can buy all the shit you wanted, sorry, and, and feel good, right? And so you're, 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 you're in college for an instrumental reason to be good. You're, you're not here because you think there's anything 
worthwhile learning here. So any inherent value to no. the education itself is no. gone. It's all gone. Which yeah. describes uh, yeah. my pain. And when I when yeah. I when I was a consultant as an academic consultant, and I would meet like thousands of kids, and I'd always ask them the same question: Why do you go to school? Yeah, and the answer was to get that paycheck. Right, there was no it. inherent value no. in the education. We don't believe in it anymore, yeah. right? Because there, there's what is there to learn? By the by the way, most by the, and again, I don't want to be preachy here. And, take this playfully, but by the time most people become 25, they already know what they're going to know, actually, which is, the, you can't be, there's not a whole lot of education that's really going on because people come believing that they know what they know about God or economics or, or whatever it is, and, and you're not really going to alter that, but that's another class, that's another discussion. So I tell my students, I said, look, so you're here, you've checked off this box, this is instrumental, you're you're here in Introduction to Political Philosophy because it fits your schedule, you got to take it, you got to check off a box, and 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 here you are. And but you don't really care about political philosophy, and maybe you don't even like it, maybe you're bored, and so maybe you think to yourself, well, but you still need an A. So two things happen. Either you've mastered the system in an instrumental way, mm -hmm. so you can come here, you can take really good notes, maybe you, 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 you record my lectures, and then you play the game well. You just type back to me what you think I want to hear. I'm flattered by it because I read my own words, so I'm playing the same game, and I give you an A. Or, or the other model where you just say, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get the A. This is a competitive world. This is all boring to me, so I'm going to gonna buy a paper I'm gonna I'm gonna cut and pay. I'm gonna cheat just and you use the word very loosely I'm gonna cheat but I'm gonna present this work as mine right. and I say so 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 I say so let's take that model so those and by the way cheating is 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 ubiquitous among it's ubiquitous in life cheating on taxes cheating on spouses cheating on exams cheating on resumes it's ubiquitous cheating is ubiquitous because yeah. you're sort of punished for following the oh, rules in a Machiavellian yeah. way you have to yeah. right in the Machiavellian world you have to even if you wanted to do good the the calculation doesn't allow you to right because if, if the society is genuinely competitive like say for example I were too great on a straight curve right so there's 40 kids 40 students in the class and on a straight curve only four of them are getting A's eight are getting B's 16 are getting C's and the rest over half the class are getting D's. It's brutal, mm -hmm. right? And I couldn't do that. That's, in fact, that was, I had classes and when I was in university graded on a curve. Um, typically the science courses are graded on curves, the biology courses, the economics, those, those sciences are, you go to the really good university and it's a straight curve, it's brutal. So there's an, and, and even if you wanted to do well, you you know, you've, you, you, if you did learn anything from this stupid political philosophy class you took, you knew that everybody's Machiavellian. So you know that at least 40% of the people around you are cheating. Right. They're cheating. And they're and by the way, they're pretty good at it. Right. They've right? had a lot of time to practice. Yeah, cheating. yeah, that's right. And so now you you're at a disadvantage, right? Yeah. And so you so so hence the famous story, which is Machiavellian. Nice people finish last. Right? You played by the rules, you worked hard, and you still got yeah. screwed. And nice parents yep. get manipulated by yep. their kids and okay. taken advantage yep. of, okay. and their so, kids can't survive on their own. Right. So yeah. I say to my, so you know this. So you come to me when you hand in your 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 paper, and and you're a fox, right? You say, boy, Professor Dungey, I'm loving the class. I'm having a great time. You're so wonderful, and you <laughs> hand me your paper, and it's not your paper. You're cheating, but you're but you are you're. 
You're playing the game. You're you are presenting yourself as someone who didn't cheat. You want me to see you as someone who's worked really hard, read the book twice, who's smart, who's smart, yeah. right? Right? You yeah. you are duplicitous. We yeah. we are duplicitous. We are not the people we pretend to be. And we are not the people we pretend to be because we live in this Machiavellian world where even though we're cheating and doing potentially aggressive and self-interested stuff and even potentially harmful stuff, we got to make sure people still like us. We got to still be loved because for Machiavelli, the prince wants glory at the end of the day. The, the, the goal is not to be Saddam Hussein, right? The goal is to be Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus. Oh, and all right. sorts of extraordinary sorts things. Of extraordinary things. You know, and again, I don't want to get into the morality right. of that. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not resurrecting the South here. But I'm just saying, you know, Lincoln started a war um, in order to do something that he thought was good. And again, I, I, I agree with him, right? But through those actions, hundreds of thousands of people uh, died. He was ultimately assassinated because of it. And, and yet, despite the, this kind of, we, we think of him as the greatest president, right. right? And for important reasons from a certain point of view, because he, he acquired and exercised this executive power. He, he, he did it in emergency times, had to do very difficult things, which caused extraordinary harm to people in the North and the South. Some amazing things came from it, of course. But, but at the end of the day, mm -hmm. right? Lincoln is celebrated. Lincoln has glory. Washington has glory. Jefferson has glory, generally speaking. Um, you know, uh, South American dictators don't have glory. Saddam Hussein doesn't have glory, right? So, so that's, you know, you need to become a lion and a fox because you have to do extraordinarily difficult things. You can't feel bad about it. You've got to think quickly, but you can't be hated. You've got to be loved. And that's our crisis. So it seems like we've gotten to the end of the road in terms of this. Yeah, this this is this is what executive power is. This is what this is the modern notion of power. So this is where. So to me, everything you're talking about and how it relates to the modern family mm -hmm. system and all the consequences of how we uh, use power in order to. Uh, secure the family and make sure you know your kids have the tools and the skills necessary to survive in this world mm -hmm. um, which I believe is why my work is so challenging yeah, it's almost impossible because I'm challenging the very idea of power and what it means to live a good life That's right. You have a classical, at, at the very core of what you're doing, you have a classical view of life, that there's a moral purpose to life. And, 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 I, and I mean that in a, in a loose sense, that, there, that the purpose of life is to acquire knowledge of important things, to, to live well, and to reduce crisis, to reduce suffering. Yes. Um, to be more collaborative, to yep. solve problems, mm -hmm. uh, to establish meaningful relationships yep. based in... Um, authenticity, yeah. based in transparency, yeah. based in trust, yeah. based in sharing power, yeah. and yeah. Um, 
and eliminating power struggles with kids, not through coercion and punishment, but by actually sharing power, is by saying to this child, you know, ultimately I'm the executive, but I'm going to invite you to share this, to participate in a certain form of life. Right. Because I believe that this is, you you will thrive. You will thrive this way. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. That's correct. And that is, it's, it's scary. For parents to say, if I let go of power, I have to trust the process. Well, I I would take it one step further, and I'm probably going to, you're going to get hate mail for this, but it's not just that the parents have to trust you. The parents have to learn perhaps themselves. This is where the hate mail is going to come, I, I know. But the parents, and, and again, it's not their fault. The parents have to learn who what it is that they actually value and and in many ways you know this has been going on for 300 years 400 years this is and by the way it's not preachy right the whole story we've just told and and the what and the forms and modes of life it has set into motion these are profound philosophical cultural paradigms so it's not you as an individual that we're talking to it's you as an individual Within the system it, that the, governs yeah, your and, and and which you yourself were brought up right. in. Right. Right. So there's no pointing a finger. No. There's no blame. There's no shame. No. It's just a matter of fact. Well, first of all, it's becoming aware of it. Right. right? And and as we were laughing uh, before we went on air, and we weren't, we were kind of laughing, but also in a, in a very serious way. Um, if, if there is a failure of the modern education system, and by the way, there's lots of reasons for it, tax base, public education, cheating on taxes, just, it's a massive crisis. But, but we don't teach philosophy in school. We, we just don't. Kids don't want it. They're bored by it. Parents and legislators don't want to pay for it. We, so, you know, like we were saying, you know, we don't teach even if we taught it so they could reject it in terms of their own choice of a different life. I, that's fine, too. But, but, but we don't expose people, young people, to alternative conceptions of what a life could be and what happiness could be what you are calling executive function. I mean, you it, it's very difficult because you talk about this and, and you might as well be speaking an alien language, right? Because because you are talking about executive function, but it derives from a philosophical perspective that is not taught, right. no one has any idea about, and no one's ever heard of. And it's not congruent with the expectations no, not of at all. society. No, it was it was it was personally rejected to create this society. Right. right? Right? You know, I tell my student one of the most one of the most profound books that you can I literally now I'm gonna really get hate you're gonna get really get hate mail for this, but I'm quite sincere about this. One of the most profound things that you can ever read is and by the way, it's I introduce this to my students as the most important person you've never heard of. And his name's Boethius. He's a Stoic philosopher, um, late Roman Stoic philosopher. And um, he wrote this book called The Consolation of Philosophy. And the first three chapters are extraordinary. Every every person should be required to read it in the sixth grade and then reread it at the eleventh grade. Just 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 to expand one's exposure to thinking and then potentially 
to uh, to equip oneself with some very powerful ideas. But we don't. It's just it just it's not something that is done. And I'm glad you brought up Boethius because uh, I remember reading that book. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. Thank you. After your class, I I held on to my copy yep. and I, I called it my Bible. Yep. Yep. It's a stoic, it's, it's, it's philosophical version of a well-lived life. And, and the, I think the biggest idea I carried with me and what I try to teach the parents I work with is this idea that you don't have control yeah. over anything outside yeah. of you. I mean, right. you barely have control of your own faculties. Yeah. And this is where executive unless functioning you, comes in. you've read Plato Buena, you don't even have control <laughs> of your own faculties. Right? Right. <laughs> but we won't go that far. Yeah. But, <laughs> You at least uh, yep, have yep, no control yep. over anything outside of you, yep. meaning the decisions and yep. the choices that your kids make, they're their choices. Yeah, absolutely. They're, your child isn't an extension of you, and you, you, they're not a blank slate when they're born. They're born with their own direction, and you don't get to mold them into no. the person you want them to in be. In some ways, it's your job. In some ways, it's not your job, especially at that early age, but you're absolutely right. They, you know, These are people, and the, you can offer them your wisdom. You can offer it. Offered as you say authentically, and and you can be there in this unconditional support, but ultimately, yeah, ultimate. Oh, absolutely. They do not have power. Oh, yeah. They have the direction. Yeah, and and, and it's their responsibility. And in a weird way, that's yes. kind of the magic of it. They've got to take on that responsibility right. for for their own ownership of their of their life. Where parents come in and they, when they don't understand this, they take on the responsibility of their child's life and they become what, what you know, our people call over-functioning. Mm -hmm. I call it micromanaging yeah, um, because they're driven by so much fear, right? That they feel like oh. they have to control and manage their kid's life. The, the, the culture is fear-driven. I would say fear and shame, mm -hmm. you know, but this idea of fortuna, mm -hmm. yep. uh, lady fortune, yep. and the wheel of fortune, and misfortune mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I think one of the core principles that I, I wish parents operated on was the understanding that whatever's happening out there is outside of your control yeah, it's, it's, absolutely. and it's all about how you respond to it and responding yep. is executive functioning is necessary for responding yep. to it because if you react to it by your own impulses and your own emotions, you're actually going to make the yeah. crisis worse. Yeah. I mean, uh, the only thing I would say to that is it's normal to have emotional responses, right? right? So, you know, one of the, the powerful things about Boethius is that you and I, and this is stoic and this is platonic, you're, we're going to suffer, right. right? You know, as Herodotus famously said, uh, of all the bitter things in life, the most bitter is this, and that is to have awareness of so much but control over so little. And and what that means is to to be able, to fall in love, to have children, to 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 have deep friendships, to invest yourself in in all of this, to be conscious, and to be therefore invested and connected at very deep emotional levels. And and by the way, to do it at a very important level, right? To do it at a hundred percent, right? That that means inescapably that we are going to suffer, that our hearts are going to be broken, we're going to be betrayed, um, but so, and we're going to suffer. That's, that season of suffering um, will always attend life, but surviving the suffering and transcending the suffering at critically important times is the key to life. That, the, that, that you, 
you can't micromanage so you never suffer and you can't become bitter in the suffering. So the consolation of philosophy becomes our awareness of the suffering and this choice we have to accept the reality for what it is and accept our lack of control and and be okay with it. And still find a way to affirm life, which by the way is a stoic notion of happiness. Happiness is a kind of awareness of stability and, and, and contentment in one's mind, an ability to one, ultimately get some control over your emotions, um, and then two, to be able to affirm life even during times of suffering. That happiness isn't pleasure, happiness is a state of mind. Yes. And for me, if I can help a parent operate Mm-hmm. on these principles and model that to their kids, yeah. then they can give their kids a fighting chance. Oh, yeah. This, this is the beginning of, of fundamental change. Yeah. Yep. Whew. <laughs> it's hard to... To stop? It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we'll, 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 we'll end it here. Yep. And I, I guess what I'd love to do is just to put this in a nutshell, mm-hmm. um, parenting in the modern age, yeah. the idea of power, mm-hmm. the, executive. the executive, and this notion of how do we acquire executive functioning? Mm-hmm. How do we help our kids develop the skills that they need to survive? And by the way, this audience uh, in particular uh, is facing a crisis because I'm talking to parents of children who are neurodiverse who don't uh, have, like you said, that fox's ability to process all the information as it comes. These are kids with sensory processing issues. Or there's just too much data. Or there's too much the, data. The, the, you know, the, the data is overwhelming. It's, it, it, yeah. it is overwhelming the neural capacities. Or that they have anxiety, mm-hmm. mood dysregulation, mm-hmm. uh, this inability to manage themselves, mm-hmm. manage their stress. It's like mm-hmm. they don't have enough energy to use in order to manage. They don't have the ability for metacognition mm-hmm. is to develop an awareness of themselves and mm-hmm. how their behavior is affecting the outcomes on their life, which is, I'm sure, yeah. why their parents are driven by fear and that they feel. And, and by the way, there is a backlash in the parenting community mm-hmm. uh, that parents who are conscious of this, parents who are trying to live a moral or stoic life, whether they're aware of that or not, that that that's what they're doing in this sort of Hobbesian space. The backlash is from the community saying, well, you're coddling your kid, you're rewarding their negative behaviors, you should punish, you should threaten to take stuff away. So the parents who are using positive parenting or collaborative problem solving, all these models that have been developed um, to, to to govern families in a different way, outside of using power and coercion and fear and punishment, their or reward or reward, uh, they um, are they feel isolated yeah. and they feel shamed, and even when it comes to the but they need to overcome that yes. And what I want this conversation to do is to validate them and to validate the difficulty and almost like you said the impossibility of operating right. this way right. in, a, in a world that doesn't accept the, it. But again, and, and I don't want to keep this going, but this is a core, core issue to this whole conversation. For people who are in that 
mode of parenting, they need, listen to me, I, I, forgive me, this is such an ugly word. There's, they can't feel shame. They can't feel isolated if they believe fundamentally that the source of their value is themselves. Yeah. Period, which is a core stoic idea. Right. And, and, and if you can cultivate that and cultivate it authentically, as you like to say, then it doesn't give a damn what other people think. Yeah. Period. Including Harvard oh, graduated period. people with psychology yep. degrees doesn't, doesn't, who are telling you literally the exact opposite. Doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Now, you, obviously, it's important to become informed. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that you understand who you are. Um, but one of the core ideas, and, and, and by the way, this, so parents can't model this, right? One of, one of the core problems in young people is that they don't have any source of value. The source of value comes external. We teach yes. in this culture that the value, it's a, it's a market-based capitalistic right. society. It's something you acquire outside. Yeah, where well, it comes from, yeah. you know, as, as, as Hobbes famously said, the, it's not the seller, but the buyer that determines the value. Mm -hmm. So if you have a culture like that, right, yeah. that means, you know, that our value comes from the likes or comes from the vanity, comes from the popularity. It's an influencer culture, yeah. right? <laughs> and so um, value, authentic value, and the source of that value must be internally cultivated, cultivated and yeah. grounded. So I want to leave off with my three keys to transformation. I oh, feel like okay. this fits in here. Okay. okay. So my three keys to transformation, all three need to exist. And it's something I've been personally pursuing because I want to be a model to my yep, community. Uh, so the first key is knowing who you are, knowing your values and fleshing them out, taking actual time to write them down Absolutely. and continue to figure them out through time and continue to evolve and grow. So one is know who the hell you are and what is important and why. Why are you doing the things you are doing? So that's one is understand your values and that leads to your identity. The second thing is find something or someone that is a model of that so that when your emotions and the crisis and all the shit going on around you tries to disrupt that or challenge it, which it will every day, which it will, every day. that you have, Boethius. <laughs> you have Boethius yep. or you There's have something. Yeah. something. Yep. You have a, and I say it could be a coach and yep. obviously I'm a coach. And so obviously hire me, right? Yep. Or if you can't afford that, like, Go to the YouTubes yeah. and find somebody there and yeah. find multiple coaches. Yeah. Find someone who for every aspect of your life can be a model that is going to give you confidence when you don't have it right. and, and provide a consistency. So one is values and identity and acting consistently on your values and identity as much as possible. Two is having a model and a coach so that you can continue to do that despite all the challenges, which there will be a massive amount of. And the loneliness that comes with it. Speaking to the third part of transformation, which is community yep. and intentionally attracting the type of people who are sh who share your values and who share your commitment to acting on those values and who will support you when shit gets rough. Yep.
And so that's my goal through putting this out there is to, you know what you said, piss off as many people as I can and, and so that they can go away and attract the right people to take their place so that uh, I feel validated and supported by my community. And uh, we together help each other live a life that is whatever you define morally you know, good. And to me, I define that as using your talents in service to others in your community. Perfect. That's, All right. that's about right. <laughs> and if you're doing that, you have a fighting chance. So. Despite how it ends. Despite how it ends. And <laughs> there's, a, there's a great, um, there's a great doctor, I can't, uh, well, I won't even mention his name because even that's controversial to mention, but he says, we're all born with a terminal illness. We're dying right now. We're yeah. dying, right? Yeah. So, uh, so the way you choose to live your life, right? Yeah. Doing good, right things for the right In reason. In this moment. In this moment. That's and right. the present moment is all that exists. That's, that's it. So hopefully that's inspired several yeah. people who may have been on the fence. <laughs> And validated people who are on our side of the fence and kept the other people away. <laughs> well, it's really been an honor. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. And if any of you are interested in this type of conversation and more of it, I highly recommend your podcast, which is uh, Deeper Dive or at Denji State University. And I'll have the links below. Mm. Highly, highly, highly recommended. By the way, I made the mistake of listening to the first episode. It was very late at night. And you had just come out with a podcast and I was having insomnia and it was midnight, just to end on a funny story. And I thought, oh, Professor Dungy's podcast, that should lull me to sleep, right? Because I'm like, I, you know, I need to just keep my mind busy. And I ended up staying up for four hours into the wee hours of the morning, just writing notes, just writing down like half of what you're saying and just, it blew my mind. And it was, it's very stimulating. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I wish you were sleeping better. <laughs> sorry that I'm never doing that again. It's just too damn interesting. Good. Okay. Wonderful. So, Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Really Thank enjoyed. you so much. It's an honor to have you here on the podcast. It's likewise mutual.